Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome back to our Hot Topics in CT, and uh, this is the July edition, and I left off talking last time that I would pick up with techniques and protocols, and I mentioned this last time, so I'll just do it briefly about the use of CT in the trauma setting, the ability with very fast scanners to scan long distances, in this case, the article by Dresden Radiographics, a very nicely uh, illustrated article, did show the ability to scan from circle of willis to symphysis pubis. I also mentioned in the article the importance the authors placed on the routine use of coronals and sagittals and the important role that 3D imaging also plays. That is not simply something that you could do occasionally, but it's something you need to do. They talk about the benefits, but they also say, and this quote says it, that the use of coronal and sagittal images should no longer be considered complementary, but really mandatory. I talked about their protocols, mentioning they had a 0.7 pitch, but with the, some new scanners like the Flash, you can do a pitch of 3.2, 3.4, so you really can do these studies in a matter of seconds from the top of the head to the bottom of the toe. I also uh, talked about their protocol and the fact they use fixed delays, which is a good idea, and the fact these are IV contrast but no oral contrast material. In terms of techniques and protocols, I also commented last time about looking at the full field of view on thoracic and lumbar spine CT scans and making the point that there's a significant amount of information that you will miss if you don't do that. I spoke about comparing this to looking at uh, cardiac CT, why we look at the lung fields and not just the heart, even though the study's done to look at the coronary arteries. We mentioned, of course, the issues, 40% of the cases will have findings, two-thirds of which will be of no consequence, requiring no workup. Many of these are renal cysts, atherosclerotic disease, simple things like that. But unless you looked at the full field of view, you would miss 80% of these cases. And I made the point that about 15% of the cases in total will need further evaluation, which is not a trivial amount, and about 4%, a little more than 4%, so about a little less than 1 in 3 will actually have important findings, which ranged anywhere from renal cell carcinoma to transitional cell carcinoma to abdominal aortic aneurysms. So again, it's not very surprising, so it's something I mentioned you should probably consider thinking about in your practice. Now, in terms of the newest CT scanners, one of the areas of great interest is dual energy CT, and a lot of it focused on gout. A lot of the work we do is with bone subtraction, whether it's for head imaging, where you can pull out the bones, you get good carotids and circle of willis, or it's for runoff studies. In this article, they spoke about dual energy CT scanning in diagnosing the amount of iron that's present as a way, perhaps, of looking at uh, hepatic iron content. They mentioned dual energy uh, CT can be used for diagnosing clinically important hepatic iron accumulation, demonstrating sensitivity of 80% and specificity of 90% when the optimal cutoff value for attenuation between 80 and 140 kVp was set at 12.5. And the authors mentioned that it can have very strong clinical correlation. It can be used as an accurate modality for diagnosis of clinically important hepatic iron accumulation without the confounding influence of hepatic steatosis with diagnosis, with diagnostic performance, that is, on par with MR imaging. So again, something uh, 
to think about. It's a developing application that may prove important. Again, trying to get the maximum information from a CT scan. And this other article talking about gout, uh, that you're able to use CT for gout, uh, that dual energy CT may be useful in establishing the extent of gout by identifying subclinical tophi and identifying urate deposits in atypical anatomic locations for gout. And this has been shown to be a, a very strong application. There's a number of articles beyond this one. Again, they're typically non-contrast CT scans, and CT works out very nicely with these programs uh, by aiding identification of uric acid deposits within joints and periarticular soft tissues. So a very important application and something developing. Now, the other thing about dual energy, it's a potential for radiation savings by doing virtual non-contrast CTs. If you could do a good job of that, perhaps you would not do a non-contrast CT when looking at the kidneys, and perhaps you would not need a non-contrast scan when looking at endovascular stents. Which brings me very nicely into the segment on radiation, which I call the radiation stuff. Article in Lancet, breaking new grant, no new ground, but getting a lot of publicity this past month, talking about the use of CT scans in children to deliver cumulative doses of 50 milligray might almost triple the risk of leukemia, and doses of 60 milligray might triple the risk of brain cancer. Because these cancers are rare, the cumulative absolute risks are small. In the 10 years after the first scan for patients younger than age 10, one excess case of leukemia and one excess case of brain tumor per, per 10,000 HUD CTs is estimated to occur. Again, this is estimation. Uh, these are very high doses. We do much lower doses now. And the authors do mention that. But again, you're considering tripling the risk of leukemia and maybe triple the risk of brain cancer. So um, again, it created a lot of um, stir. Uh, the authors do mention, however, that although the benefits might outweigh the absolute risks, radiant doses from CT scans should be kept as low as possible, and alternative procedures which do not involve ionizing radiation should be considered if appropriate. They also comment the immediate benefits of CT outweigh the long-term risks in many settings because of CT accuracy and speed of scanning. Notably, removing the need for anesthesia and sedation in young patients, it will remain in widespread practice for the foreseeable future, which is good. We have jobs. But the point being, again, do studies that are necessary, not that are unnecessary, lower the dose as much as possible. Again, there's always this potential risk-reward. So um, there was a lot of uh, concern. I was on some of the advisory panel for this about uh, would this get a lot of press. It got some press, but truth was it wasn't anything that was all that new, and this was from England. So something, again, worthwhile reading, but again, recognizing the risk of radiation and sticking with radiation, the ways of reducing dose. So there's a program called iDose, that's from Philips, it's one of the iterative reconstruction tools. Uh, it's a it's a, one of the things you can do for reducing dose. iDose is a hybrid iterative reconstruction algorithm that provides reduced image noise compared with conventional filtered back projection. And so in this study, the Hounsfield values remained stable with iDose. The noise was reduced, and so image quality was better. The measurements of the modulation transfer factor confirmed that with iDose, there was no decline in spatial resolution. 
So again, the point being, we can lower the dose and yet not sacrifice image quality. And that's the message that's coming loud and clear from some of this iterative reconstruction. And we're starting to use it. And it's something that I think you need to look at. One issue, of course, is usually on the high-end scanners. Other articles have spoke very clearly about reducing dose, yet maintaining quality. Articles on CT enterography have been very uh, common. This article in New England Journal of Medicine speaking about low-dose abdominal CT for evaluating suspected appendicitis, and they had very good results. But again, um, you want to be careful. A lot of other good articles have made the point you want to have low dose, not low information. So you want to lower the dose enough that you can make a good diagnosis. So you don't want to lower the dose where you can't read the studies. Then you either make a bad diagnosis or have to repeat the study. We speak about many things, and I've commented on this before, but let me just remind everybody that the articles speak about using lower KV. Go to 100 from 120. That's a 30% reduction. Now people are pushing 80 care KV. Interve reconstruction protocols, people talk about 20-25% reduction. Dual energy CT, if you get rid of one phase, you can drop dose by a third. Elimination of unnecessary phases, the point being design your protocols. Don't always do something because you've always done it. In liver imaging now, most people do not do non-contrast CTs. That gets rid of one full set of radiation dose. And again, for the technologist, really limit the area scanned. It's very easy to scan too high or too low. You could have 30% too much area scanned. If you're doing the abdomen, do the abdomen. Don't do half the chest. Again, very important. We talk about the role of referring physicians. Again, give us the best history possible so we design the study correctly. Order the right studies. We're happy to help you. Consult with radiology routinely. If you're not certain what to do, just call us. We'll help you. And if your radiologist doesn't help, just give me a call. 410-340-6649. Okay. Radiation dose and the CT scanner used. Again, one challenge is what scanner do you have? The newest scanners from every vendor can give lower dose. Those are the ones with iterative reconstruction. Those are the ones with dual energy. So, again, it's very important. Uh, dose is really machine dependent. And if you can't buy a new scanner, make sure you're running your scanner at the best possible dose. Um, radiation dose and clinical application. This is articles talking about how to do things. What's the clinical application? What information do I need? Is it an adult or pediatric patient? What's the patient's size? It's not one size fits all with radiation. What's the best scan protocol? Single phase, dual phase, three phase. Do what's necessary, no less, no more. And other things, again, this volume, scan the right volume. Answer the right questions. And again, IV contrast is your friend. These days, you want to use IV contrast when at all possible. It makes it much easier to reduce dose and get good quality images. Okay? As long as I mentioned IV contrast, let's talk about contrast. What has uh, been new? A series of articles looking for uh, use of medical uh, imaging during pregnancy and lactation. Um, typical ACR guidelines are there's no problem in terms of giving IV contrast and patient breastfeeding. 
And this article makes the point that no mutagenic or teratogenic effects have been described after administration of iodinated contrast during pregnancy, and neither in vitro nor in vivo tests performed in animals revealed any deleterious effects from exposure to iodinated contrast material. And so the authors correctly concluded the use of iodinated contrast agents in nursing mothers is considered safe. Now, they looked a little bit further. The dose of iodinated or gadolinium-based contrast that reaches the infant through ingestion of breast milk is very small, and only a minute proportion of this reaches the GI tract of the infant and is subsequently absorbed. There is insufficient evidence to recommend even a temporary cessation of breastfeeding following the administration of either iodinated or gadolinium-based contrast agents. So now many of the articles, including the ACR 7.0, will say if patients are very anxious, let them pump for a day. And so they won't have to breastfeed for a day. But again, this article says it's really not necessary. There's another nice article that was published that actually asks a very good question. And the question it asks is, do you need to fast for a CT scan? And they did a survey. This is mainly non-U.S. And they found that people did all sorts of things from overnight fasting to four to six hours prior to the study, two to three hours prior to the study, or no NPO at all. And they concluded that there was little evidence that ingestion of clear inert fluid prior to contrast-enhanced CT is a cause of aspiration pneumonia. The length of fasting is variable in any country, being much longer in some hospitals than in others. Our rule is, after midnight, keep drinking fluids. We don't want you to have a meal within three hours of CT, but do not be NPO. The worst thing is being dehydrated. That increases your risk of contrast nephropathy. Uh, same article, the literature provides no direct evidence suggesting that ingestion of inert fluids prior to CT with intravenous contrast administration causes aspiration pneumonia. So again, very, very important. So our policy, I'll just tell you, do not eat three hours before the study, drink lots of fluids, though you try to avoid coffee, especially if you're getting a cardiac CT scan, but lots of fluids, juice, water, and continue to drink lots of fluids for the next 24 hours. Cannot go wrong with that regimen. What else? 3D imaging. Um, good article, Pam Johnson, just published. Uh, this is the PubMed abstract talking about n data to knowledge. And the point we like to make is post-processing of computer tomography data is no longer an option, but a true requirement in this era of 64-row multi-detector CT and beyond. And the thing we spoke about in this article really is the importance of this comprehensive examination. The introduction of spiral CT from the days of single slice to today's 64 creates data sets with unprecedented spatial and temporal resolution. The key to CT in the big picture is not acquisition alone, but in the use of the data acquired. By supplementing traditional axial imaging with 3D rendering of the volume, the greatest amount of information available is extracted. And I like to make the point why this is so important. In this era with reduced dose, you want to do one study, get all the information possible. This comprehensive information from the coronal, sagittals, obliques, and 3D mapping is indeed critical for cl key clinical decision making. Again, look at that quote, post-processing of CT data. Is, no, is thus no longer an option, but a true requirement in this era of 64-row MDCT and beyond. Well said indeed. Could not have said it better myself. The other thing I 
that's big in 3D imaging in some ways, I've put it in 3D, is the iPad becoming a major player in terms of looking at images. This is a paper from Hopkins looking at the accuracy of an iPad for diagnosing pulmonary embolism. And the results were that the PACS and the uh, iPad were identical. So now the iPad has the potential to expand our capability for consultation and to expedite emergency patient management. In this study, and you could read it in detail, it's an emergency radiology this month, uh, very, very nice details showing you that the accuracy of both techniques is the same. CT identification on an iPad enabled accurate identification of pulmonary embolism, equivalent to display on the PACS. This mobile device has the potential to expand radiologist's availability for consultation and expedite emergency patient management. And that's just incredibly important. And we talk about the new software really allows you to do everything. And as we go to the cloud, the ability that everywhere, anywhere becomes true. And it's not just our experience. I looked through PubMed. Here was an article looking at emergency brain CTs, high accuracy on uh, the iPad. 3D imaging during lung segmentectomy using an iPad, high accuracy. Uh, it allowed the, enhanced the ability to perform a safe and secure segmentectomy. This article here, iPad versus secondary class monitors. So now we're calling other monitors second-class citizens. That's how good the iPad is. But all joking aside, the iPad performed with equal diagnostic accuracy when compared with the secondary-class LCD devices after DBM-MRMC analysis demonstrating the iPad as an option to aid initial review of MR spinal emergency cases. So that was the application they looked at there. And here was an, another application looking at on-call radiology. So again, whether you look at these articles or our article, I think it shows very nicely that the iPad's becoming a major player in this arena and something indeed where it can, can continue to grow. So with that, why don't we take a break again and let me come back with part three and part three will be the last part and we'll see you in a couple of minutes. Thanks a lot.